I miss a green, for example. I'm already upset. When I find my ball in the bunker, I'm really upset. And when I find my ball in a fried egg. Fried egg. The dreaded fried egg. Fried egg. Fried egg. Fried egg. Fried egg. Fried egg lie. I'm about ready to run off the golf course. Welcome back to another edition of the Friday Golf Podcast. Today's episode, it's going to be me and Joseph Lamagna talking about, you know, doing an early look at the Masters, uh, a little bit on the golf course and a little bit on the players um, as we head into, I mean, we're six weeks away from the Masters, really, really close. Um, so just doing an early look, early talk on the masters, um, as we head into the Florida swing here on the PGA tour, also talk a little bit about the golf course. There were some changes, uh, rather small changes, but could play some, could have some significance in the championship. Um, but first Joseph, what are you in on this week? This isn't something new, Andy, but I'm in on the walk and talks. Did you see the uh, Matt Wallace walk and talk on Saturday at the Mexico Open? Right after he hit it in the water, right? It was awesome. Yeah, he's he's got like a, a pretty demanding approach shot and rinses it, hits it into the water. He had he had talked a little bit about what he was going to try to do on the shot, hits it in the water, and then has to put the AirPods back in and kind of talk through what went wrong. And I think it's maybe more compelling to listen to a player talk through what went wrong while he's in contention of the tournament than to, to see somebody hit a shot to 30 feet and, and just have a casual, easy conversation. So I thought it was endearing. Matt Wallace came across really well. And Brad Faxon made the point that obviously he's self-interested in making this point, but it, it came across genuine. These are a great opportunity for players to show a little bit of their personality, earn some fans and, you know, spruce up a Saturday slow broadcast. So I thought it was great. I was, uh, you know, I maybe they should start to do players at the bottom of the leaderboard rather than players at the top. On Friday afternoon, who's in last place? Seek them out and talk to them, talk to them about their week. I, you're joking, but I mean, talking to somebody that you wouldn't expect them to talk to, I think is interesting. And if you always pick guys in contention, maybe they're going to be a little more focused and not you know, expresses some of their personality as much. So I honestly think you're kind of onto something there with going off the board a little bit. Well, I mean, <laughs> the reality is if you're at the top of the leaderboard, a lot of things are going well, like you're in full control of your game. I mean, Jake Knapp obviously only hit two fairways. That was, that was beaten into the ground on Sunday, but he led the tournament in approach play. So, <laughs> and he hits the ball really far. So, what is there to talk about, really? Like, oh, yeah, I'm not maybe not hitting the driver as well as I have the rest of the week, but I'm still hitting great approach shots. And, and you know, that that's the thing is that there is, especially on Saturday. I, I think there'll be maybe they expand it, do more walk and talks. I don't know how much more production this takes. I imagine it's a, a little bit, but like this seems like something simple to do on Fridays and Thursdays that could you know, add some some interest on telecast days that are a little dull. 
Yeah, or do a little research and, and figure out that this guy's close on the Aeon Swing 5 and ask him, hey, do you even know like what you would need to finish this week to finish in the top, in the Aeon Swing 5? Like, I think if you do a little bit of research and pick the right names, the product can be really good. So that's what I'm in on. Andy, what are you in on this week? I am in on AK's return. This is a lukewarm in. <laughs> am I in on how it's happening, where it's happening? No. Am I in on the premise of AK coming back and playing golf for the first time in 12 years? Yes. I um I'm kind of it's kind of a tepid in here. I think I I've been thinking about like do I want to jump in? I'm not jumping in head first, but I am dipping my toe in on the AK return. I'm just super curious with the only real uh, the only other golfer like um, big time golfer that we've seen have a super extended break from golf is Tiger. And we've seen the rust be an issue, but we've seen him return to form. I think this is fascinating. This is going to be fascinating in terms of, uh, uh, you know, a lot of people, we did a podcast about a month ago about AK really dove in deep. A lot of people are now saying AK wasn't a great player. Wasn't it? AK was a very, very good player. He was a great player in, in, in you know in a short sample size he didn't play he didn't have a 10-year career but his highs were very high um that being said i'm just i'm fascinated about how his game ages i do i do i think like if he doesn't play well i'm not gonna be really i'm not gonna care after three events but i think this is actually a something that I'm going to be interested in watching from live, which is a rare thing to say about live. Yeah. I was going to ask you, I mean, I'm in on it too, Andy, where would he have to finish on this leaderboard for you to have a takeaway either in either direction? I think like 24 or better. Yeah. Top half of the field. I mean, there there's, there's 15 really good players on, on live. Maybe twenty really good players without just just thinking through. So, I think if he finishes in in the realm of like, I even think like if he sh- if he finishes thirty and there's a a really good round, um, it's it's an encouraging sign. I kind of think we're going to be looking at like forty fortieth finishes if I had to guess. I mean, what would you set the over under on his finish at? for if that, you were going to really, set a line. It's a good question. I, I I was trying to think of other situations that are sort of like this. There's no situation. It's 12 years off. Well, the the real conversation, I was thinking in my head, like, where is he compared to Michael Block? Like, all jokes aside, like, that would be kind of an interesting matchup. I think over-under... Liv for just Anthony, needs to get blocky. Yeah. I think an over-under for Anthony Kim this week is like 48th, right? No. There's 48... There's... 50 guys in the field what is it 56 because it's the 56 yeah because they have 13 teams now I, i'm not kidding like it does he, I, I actually think it's near the bottom i mean is 48 crazy you think he's gonna beat 10 guys i think it's i think it's like i think it's 40th 40.5 i'll slam the over on 40 and a half <laughs> i think he's finishing worse than 41st place you know, a lot of things have happened in the 12 years since AK has been gone and Blandy is riding a top 14 streak. He's he's never had to go up against Dick Bland. 
I, this is a fun one. I, I'm going to set the over-under at 48, and, and that might sound crazy. 48, you set it at 40. We'll see what happens. 47 and a half. You got to get on the on the half, li- half All right, line. 47 and a right. half. All right. I'll go under. I'll go under. You can take over. Deal. All right. What are you out on? Andy, I am out on court storming, which may not sound golf, but I'm getting there. <laughs> on Saturday night, Duke Wake Forest basketball, fans rush the court. Ends up hurting one of the star players on Duke. Don't know how serious the injury is, but tweaked his knee and had it was kind of limping off the court. And this is going to sound again like an old old man yelling at the clouds, but I think in golf we've had these break contain situations a couple of times over the last few years. Major championships, the the Phil Mickelson one, which you were a part of that stampede. Um, East I was Lake. a part of both. I was part of uh, the the St Andrews one too. St. Andrews, we had the East Lake one with Tiger. We they did it at the US Open last year. Uh, not as close to Wyndham Clark, but the fans came running around. I'm out on that. I, I think it, eventually, like that can go wrong, especially when people have been drinking. I think there does need to be some protection for players. You can't protect every player. Like there's so many guys spread out across the course that fans are gonna get close to them. It's really hard. But the break contained thing on 18, when you have a stampede. I'm I'm out on that, and I, I think this hopefully this court storming on Saturday night was a wake up call to, to, to all sports leagues that when you have a bunch of fans rushing at athletes, it can actually get pretty unsafe. So I'm out on that. Hope it doesn't happen at majors this year. Um, I think Brooks actually got dinged. Um, yeah. at the Kiowa one, he talked about it after like somebody hit his knee, and that was the thing. Everybody was focused on Phil in that moment. Brooks had a chance to win. And none of the, the problem is there's no way to stop it in golf. You know how many security guards you need to stop a, a horde of people that want to sh- charge the hole? I think they need to think about that. I just don't think they have enough volunteers. It, yeah, it's, it's a legit. Having they, been they, a part of two of them, I just, I, I don't know how you stop it. I hear you. But if it happens and somebody gets hurt, they're going to figure out a way. To, to make sure it doesn't happen again. So I think they should get out of it. How's basketball going to stop it? I don't know how basketball is going to stop Yeah, it. they're going to have to impose fines. Not every not every court or every um, conference has fines for storming the court, and I think that's probably an effective way. So uh, I don't know what the solution is in golf, if it's more security, but I do think this is the type of thing that no one thinks is a big deal until it happens, and then everyone reacts to it, almost like the Phoenix Open and that getting out of control. Like The athletes do need to be protected. Andy, what are you out on? I am out on the rules of golf and their applications at the professional level, at the PGA Tour level in particular. This weekend, we had a, a situation this weekend at, at, at Mexico. We had a situation with a boundary uh, line. S.H. Kim got a free drop um, in the final group on Sunday. Sammy Valamaki took an unplayable. Um I just think this is insane that they were in basically the same situation and two different outcomes happened because one guy claimed that he was going to play a ridiculous shot from over the fence. Um, I just think there needs to be some uniformity of this, right? Um, It's a struggle with rules in every league. The NBA struggles with refereeing. MLB, they want to go to like they people want robot umpires. Um, the NFL, there's constant complaints about what is and what isn't holding. This is a, a struggle, but at a golf level, 
I think there should be like an equitable way to treat everyone. Um, there's, I, I don't necessarily think there should be like an, Oh, gotcha. I know the rules a little bit better than you when there's a rules official right there administering the rule. I think like the aspect of understanding the rules to help yourself is, is a good thing when it's a situation where you're out on your own. It's like, Hey, I'm going to take a drop from here because this is impeding my swing. I just don't like the general idea of using the rules to to gain an advantage on the field. I don't think that's a good um, motive for players to be charged with. And then it puts the referees in this place where they're enablers and they look bad and the whole sports league looks bad. And that's what happened. Like all of golf looked ridiculous on Sunday. And I, you know. Thankfully, it was a low stakes event, Mexico Open. But had this happened in like a U.S. Open, it would have been insane. So Valamaki doesn't get a free drop, but S.H. Kim gets a free drop because he just basically lies to the rules official that he's going to play a preposterous shot from the other side of the fence. Um, so anyways, that is what I'm out on. I I just think that um, if there's a rules official, it was the same rules official there. He should have said something to Valamaki, and yeah, I mean, he had to be thinking, "Oh man, this is the same exact situation as Thursday." Couple things, yeah. So Sh Kim's on Thursday. Basically, it seems like the the what happened is the the sandy area to the right of the cart path is considered part of the cart path. So if he why why his, is that that's crazy? Part of the totally it's, crazy. It's sand with you with you. So his ball is underneath the fence, and he basically says that he would want to play it sideways and go on the other side of the fence. Therefore, he's standing on the cart path, and that's why he gets relief, I believe, is is the true ruling. The question that I think needs to be asked is, why would he try to hit it sideways? That's going to put him in the same spot as if he were to take unplayable with a stroke. So why why I think there should have been some pushback from the rules official on why would you attempt that shot? You're not going to get closer to the hole or... Like it, it seems like a highly unlikely shot that a player would attempt. He so wouldn't even, have. This is the thing. The right. rules official needs to be like, you would never play that shot. Yeah. So the sand shouldn't have been considered part of the path. I don't think that I, I would maybe disagree a little bit. I don't think the rules official is supposed to help Valamaki. I know he's not supposed to. I'm yeah. just saying it's, it's just like this idea of manipulation of Agreed. the rules is, is a bad thing to go down and where you have players trying to like I gotcha the rules officials constantly like I mean we see yeah. this where guys are just asking for free drops all over the place and then they get almost upset if they don't like the entitlement of the drop right and another thing Andy I don't know that this is priority one but some of the players who English isn't their first language like they might almost be at a competitive disadvantage because they can't go back and forth with the rules official sometimes on like, what are all of my options? And yeah, I want to play this ridiculous shot from across the fence. Like that's a small thing, but that honestly is relevant. So I'm with you trying to game the rules by some kind of conversation with the rules official. It was, uh, it was absurd. Valamaki probably could have gotten a free drop if he'd asked for it. And that's crazy. I don't, you know, this is like a, a departure from the tradition of the game. But at the highest level with millions of dollars at stake, like the PGA Tour, should the rules officials just be the people that make the rulings? It'd be a huge change. 
And it's not anymore the players asking or and and maybe you have, you know, this is the thing. They they're they've got a big cash infusion into the game. Is there a walking rules official that does, you know, I scoring and and rules for each group um at every tournament? Is that a feasible thing? I, I to be honest, I don't think that's necessarily the answer, but I think there's sh- situations like this where sand is being considered part of the cart path is kind of the problem here like that's that's a crazy way to set that hole up and we could have easily avoided all of this by just not having the sand to be considered part of the cart path so i don't know if they need an overall overhaul to how these rulings are made though i don't i think it's worth exploring that option but just just having that sand as part of the cart path was the problem all right let's get into our masters uh conversation but first i got a little announcement to make i'm pretty excited about this um Brendan Porath, myself, Matt Ruches, and Cameron Hurtis from our team are embarking on a, a big trip to Northern Ireland next week. Um, I've been dying to see uh, Northern Ireland golf uh, on my list in Club TFE of like courses I wanted to see this year. I didn't know I was going to be doing this trip at that time. Um, I put like the number one course I wanted to see this year was Royal County Down. Um, so we are seeing the best, uh, of golf in Northern Ireland. We're going to, we're going to fit in some hidden gems as well. We're going to see Royal County down Ardglass, uh, Royal Portrush, Port Stewart, Castle Rock. And then we're going to kind of fit in some of the coastal courses that are, uh, fly a little bit under the radar. I'm super excited about it. I'm also really excited to immerse myself in the culture, see some of the other sites. Uh, it, it just looks like a stunning place. So I will be going to Northern Ireland um, next week. I cannot wait to really, um, I think it's one of the things, I, I love doing the research of a trip and putting together a trip. Um, one of the things I thought about a lot is there aren't a lot of places um, that you can play to courses of the standard of Royal Port Rush and um, Royal County Down in terms of the way they're thought of across the world. There are very and and one of the neat things too with them is they're both connected to really it seems like vibrant towns. Um, so what I love about this trip is that you can kind of limit your driving time. It's mostly on highways, and we are staying in in Newcastle and Port Rush, but like we're staying there for significant periods of time. So I can't wait for this trip. Uh, and there'll be a lot more on this podcast feed as well as uh, the shotgun start and on the website about our trip and socials. So um, buckle up and uh, pay attention to the Northern Ireland stuff that's going to be coming down the pipe. Uh, Joseph, let's talk about the Masters. Um, let's start with the course. Um, what are your thoughts on, on the golf course from just, you know, you look at courses a little bit different than. I do, or Garrett does. Um, what are your thoughts on the Masters and what stands out to you about Augusta National? Yeah, super excited to do this, Andy, because I don't think you and I have really talked that much about Augusta as a golf course. You've been there multiple times and played it. So excited to get into it. I think I do have a different view on Augusta than a lot of people. I feel like what always gets thrown around is that it's a bomber's course and and you can just spray it. I actually disagree with that. And I don't think that, I, I think that narrative's overblown. So Personally, I find Augusta to be much more demanding off of the tee than it's often given credit for, and you haven't have to keep the ball in play. A lot of holes out there. If you miss by a little bit, 
there's a little bit of a penalty. And if you miss by a lot, you start to get into problems. I think the first hole is a great example of that, where if you spray it right or left, like you can start to bring some big numbers into play. So I was curious from your perspective, Andy, when you played it for the first time last year, did you find it more demanding off the tee than you expected? Because that's something that when I talk to players, they tend to agree with me on that it's more demanding off the tee than it's given credit for. So I really wanted to get your perspective on that. I always find in a way when you're under the gun, the more demanding tee shots can almost be easier because they narrow your focus. Um, So if you have like water right and bunkers left, you might look at that hole. Like what I usually will say to myself is like, you know what? You just got to make a great swing. And that actually frees me up to just make a great swing. Where golf gets you is when they prey on your weakness. Like when you prey on your uncomfortable feelings right so when you say to yourself oh you and i think like the the best players in the world are so great at this right they know where they can miss but they also know sometimes they just have to hit up hit a great shot um with augusta what i found interesting was i i was like really nervous to play last year um it's like one of those rounds where it felt like i was playing like a state am when i teed off because i was nervous about playing Augusta. This is a course you dreamed about playing your whole life. Like you get these nerves. And I think people probably like, so when you play a great course in your area, you're a little uncomfortable that like you've been really wanting to play in a while. And what I noticed was I played really well, the holes that I drove it well and the holes that I didn't drive it. Well, I struggled with like, that was a very, you know, um, and I think like I was playing obviously a persimmon driver. I think everybody's probably heard that that listens to this podcast, but like it was a smaller head. And when I get a little quick, I miss, I miss tee shots, you know, out to the right. And I missed a lot of the, I missed a lot of tee shots early and my score reflected that, um, like particular, a whole like perfect example is I hit it right on five. And that is a very wide fair it's a wide corridor but if you miss the corridor you're in a lot of trouble like i was punching out sideways i made a double there you know i'm punching out sideways i think i hit a good punch shot had a third shot then i three putted like it so the way i think like what happens at augusta in particular is that mistakes compile and the key to augusta when you get out of position is the number one thing is understanding you're out of position and getting your next shot back into a position to avoid big numbers. Because what happens there is you're out of position. You try and hit a great shot because one of the things that it does do is allows you really heroic recovery options. And when you try and recover and you don't recover, you find yourself in a worse spot. And then you get out of that. And next thing you know, you're like, I got to really grind to not make a double. And if you could just limit yourself, like a perfect example is like I made, I I think I made four birdies in the round. I hadn't played golf for a week. I was coming off of covering a golf event. I was nervous and I made four birdies, right? Like you can make a ton of birdies. The key out there, and this sounds simplistic, is avoiding the big numbers. And you usually make the big numbers when you hit a bad tee shot. Yeah, I I think, and I'm glad you brought up five. 
People always, when they talk about golf courses, only focus on the width of fairways and, and think that that tells the whole story. And that is not the right way to look at professional golf courses and how it tests. You have to consider if you miss by a little bit, what's the penalty? And if you miss by a lot, what's the penalty associated with that? I think the fifth hole is a great example where it is pretty wide, but if you hit it 310 yards, 320 yards, like some of these guys, and you get offline, either left or right, you're starting to bring some big numbers into play if you don't play it smart. So I, I think that's a great example of a hole. There's a lot, right? Like I think seven, not my favorite hole, but you got to hit the ball straight off the tee. See, I think that's one of actually the easier tee shots out there because it's a tunnel, right? And the and you, what happens is those trees narrow down your focus. I felt like I stood on that tee and I was like, well, I just got to hit it straight. What's harder about the course is, is when you have the wider corridor, the wider space, but you have the challenge, like what we're talking about with five, where if you miss wide left or wide right on five, you're in a really bad spot. But on five, you've got that deep bunker on the left and you're, you, you're trying to shade to sides of the fairway. I'm not saying you're ever trying to hit it down the left side. But as a player, you're shading, okay, I want to push this left center. And when you start to shade out there, what it does is it brings those bigger misses in versus seven. Seven's like, okay, I just have to hit this straight. And it gives you a defined shape and shot to hit. Whereas I found the really tough driving holes to be the ones that are a little bit more choose your own adventure. Pick a line. I... Something that's interesting, it, I, this happened at Aaron Hills. A few players talked about it. I remember Jason Day talked about how much he struggled. So that's a place also that had really penalizing. It was wide, but when you missed wide, it was super penalizing. And Jason Day talked about how it was hard to find things to aim at. And I think when you get wider corridors, that becomes a struggle. It's not as defined. These guys are so good when the when the target is defined. That's what they all are trying to do is pick a target, commit. You hear caddies say that so much in these like pick a car target, commit, commit to it. And when they're a little when it's a little bit wider as a player, you're kind of looking at the fairway thinking, "Oh, I could I maybe I'll be over here, maybe I go over there." And I think that's challenging. Yeah, it's a different type of shot. So I don't disagree that like what's a harder shot might be the T on five versus the T on seven. But a broader point, I think an underrated part of the entire golf course is that when you spray it a little bit, you're in real trouble. So I, I also think what you're hitting on with the sight lines is an interesting point. And maybe why you see certain golfers have more success. There may be a little bit more predictiveness to how they've done in the past at Augusta, because that's a little bit of a different type of shot. So I think we'll get into some names later, but Certain guys who are comfortable with that, you see them year in and year out near the top of the leaderboard. I think that's a, a an interesting thing to call out. Um, Andy, Andy, one, I wanted to get into the, a couple holes, nothing super in detail, but I think for me, two of the holes that have never popped as much that I haven't been there in person, so I would love your perspective on, are 14 and 17. And I know the green complexes are, are pretty severe and that's a big part of the appeal, but can you give people something about those two holes? Cause I've never felt like they maybe present as well on TV. I've always thought they're like fine, but I, 
never really get, been engaged with either of those holes. So curious for your perspective from playing it and seeing it in person. Uh, let's start with 14. I think they're both amazing. Two, two of the best greens on the golf course. And that's saying a lot on the golf course that maybe has the best greens in the world. Um, so with 14, it's a classic, you're fighting the land. So you've got like a severe left to right slope that I don't think like the camera, nobody ever explains this. I think great is where that slope is so severe. You feel like you need to turn it over into it. If you hit a fade and the fairways are running like that ball is going to bounce really far. Right. And what you want here is like, I feel like we see in these, in the masters, that's a hole where you can take advantage of it. Um, especially on the weekend, you can make birdies there if you hit a good tee shot. So it's so important to have the ball in the fairway and have control of your ball. But it's actually a very, it's like one of those fairways that it's wide, but it functionally plays a lot smaller because of the slope. The other thing about the tee shot is it's blind. Um, So you also have the discomfort of, okay, I can't really see where this is going. Um, With 17, that's a narrow tee shot, like seven. Um, You got to really like stand up and execute. One of the cool things about 17, and I experienced this firsthand, is that green sits, the green site sits at such a severe left to right slope. And it's built up super, super, it's super built up on the right. And it looks like that right, that back right, for example, whole location that's brutally tough. It looks like that is elevated. But that shot from and putts from left to right there are so fast from the left side of the green to the right side of the green because it's gravity, right? It, your eyes will tell you that it's you're putting up, but it's it's so fast. So if you're chipping left to right, it's crazy fast. I think the green is just marvelous where a lot of greens at Augusta. I, so one of my big things at Augusta, everybody talks about it's approach course. It's an approach course. It's an approach course. And the 17th is a great example of this. What it is, is it's an approach course slash a lag putting course. And chipping. Yeah, chipping too. You're going to, people, you have to hit great approach shots to generate birdies out there. But when, like, you're not going to hit 72 great approach shots. And when you don't hit great approach shots out there, if you hit average approach shots, you have really hard two putts. If you hit poor approach shots you have really hard two putts or difficult up and downs and a lot of the reasons they are is what happens is the slopes have they go up and then a lot of them on the backside go down so you are putting up and over slopes and you ha- you're having to gauge and what they do is they put the whole locations close to these slopes so you're having to gauge the up and then the down. So you're worried. You're you're a lot of times you're just trying to get it over the slope because then the back slope of it's going to take it right to the hole. And if you put a little too much gas on it, you've got eight feet coming back. I don't I didn't find like the speed of Augusta's greens to be a problem as much as I found the slopes of them, right? Where they feel so fast because of how where they put hole locations. And how they interact with the slopes. So you're you're putting over a slope, 
and then it's a downslope away and you you're like oh, i have to get this over the slope and you can look really silly and not get it over the slope and the ball comes back to you but then if you get it over the slope and you're a little like you're you're thinking about oh i got to hit this hard you have to be so free mentally in all parts of your game is really the thing there is that you have to be able to let go of where of of what could happen because when you're thinking about what could happen things inevitably go wrong does that make sense yeah and i think what you're hitting on and i think this is another big misconception about augusta i think you're hitting on how crucial it is to have control over your ball and how much you can separate yourself tee to green and even include lag putting in that a little bit but i where i'm going with that is i think putting is just not short range putting especially is not nearly as important at augusta as it is a lot of places and it often i i kind of cringe when i hear people say like you gotta putt well at augusta i think lag putting sure right but short range putting that that can be a weakness of yours and you can still win and i think some of the concepts you are articulating are why that is true, right? These big sloped greens where you can create a lot of separation T to green. And if you hit a bad one, that's a huge difference between hitting a good one. So when we see players like Will Zalatoris, Hideki Matsuyama, guys who struggle with the putter, but can be good lag putters, especially Will Zalatoris. It's interesting to hear you articulate some of those same concepts. And I think that's a good representation of why uh, when I hear people say like, oh, it's all about putting inside 10 feet. It's just not. Yeah, I mean... You're going to generate like what you're hoping for is those putts to be, you know, birdie putts, right? Which maybe carry every putts worth the same. But in terms of, of, I think at Augusta in particular, it's about, it's just keeping momentum going out there because there's so much, so many birdies to be had, but there are also so many bogeys like that. That's the, the, the crux of the course. It's just a variable golf course. It's, there's high, a high range of outcomes on almost every hole. And I think like where the criti- criticism for the golf course are the holes that they've narrowed them and narrowed them and, and reduced the number of outcomes. Cause that's the beautiful thing about the golf course is just how every hole you can conceivably make a birdie uh on like it's none of them are like oh my god nobody's gonna make a birdie on this today like when you put the pin on the back shelf at 15 at riviera like you know one or two people might make birdie but at augusta everybody's got really good chances of making birdies on holes every day um but also in that same regard like you take you lose like sight of what you're trying to do out there for a split second and doubles just creep up yeah, so with your explanation of 14 and 17, maybe altering my opinion a little bit, one one take I've had that maybe is a little out there, but I, I'd, I'd just love to hear your reaction to it. I think the front nine might be as good as the back nine. And, and I know that's like blasphemy for a lot of people, but outside of hole seven, I think the front nine is awesome. The opening hole is probably my favorite opening hole in professional golf. And just watching, I mean, the par threes are excellent on the front, especially six. Five's an amazing hole. Like I think nine's an underrated hole at Augusta. I might enjoy nine's watching cool professional hole. golf as much on the front nine as on the back nine. Is that crazy to you? No, I don't think so. 
I I think like um if you thought about it from uh, a land standpoint, I think you probably have a little bit more interesting topography on the front nine. I think the par threes are stronger. Um, people are going to look at uh, say, oh, how can you say that about twelve and sixteen? Six, I think, is the best par three on the golf course. So I'm good. super excited. That green got reworked this year. Um, so that green, there's I think more space on that back right section section which i think is is good yeah um that's an that's just an amazing uh amazing green um is so there's going to be more space on the back right and left there um so that i think like from that standpoint i don't disagree i I, two i think two is an amazing hole um i think three three is one of the ones like you see so I think there's this like evolution of Augusta too, where you you watch it on TV, you go there in person and spectate. So this is my evolution, right? Um, you watch it on TV, you go there in person to spectate, and you you learn so much, right? It's it's amazing to to spectate. But then when you play and you can actually step on the greens, your feet are on the greens. There's like a whole other realm of stuff you learn and one of the things that's the second shot into three is it's one of the hardest wedge shots in the world it's nuts and i get why guys drive it up to a extremely undesirable location to hit that like 40 yard pitch up and away because the wedge shot you're standing in the fairway i hit one and i was right on the plateau and i was like this might be the hardest wedge shot i've ever had to hit yeah, and I think maybe an underrated part of that that shot is spin control, right? Yes, like that. <laughs> well, the green pitches insanely away, and you have a false front in front. Yeah, it's like the hardest shot. Where they put that pin on Sunday, like you, you have to hit. I hit a great, like a legitimately one of the best wedges of my life, and I had eighteen feet. It's it's kind of the spin control as a skill thing. Like that is one shot where I kind of think like somebody like Patrick Reed who can kind of hit the one bounce stop versus the high spin throw it way up in the air. He's giving himself a little bit of a, a bigger landing area. That's something I've always thought about hole three. So it's interesting to hear you say simil- echo a similar sentiment that there's just nowhere to land that wedge shot. Well, what happens is you end up long because you can't end up short. Which is a problem. Long, yeah. long's a problem too. Yeah. It's a, that's an amazing, amazing uh, second shot. So I, I think like I'm not. I, I mean, I don't think that's crazy. I think uh, eight and nine are like if you went hole by hole, right? I, I mean, ten, tens. If, if we let's do a match play, ten versus one. One for me, like I just think hole one's awesome, and maybe that's some of the history of it and everything. I'm taking I think ten. The- the second shot into 10 is insanity. I love to, I love hole 10. So we'll just call the push then um, since we can't reach consensus. Uh, 11 versus two. I mean, for me, it'd be hole two. Me too. So one up on the front nine. Three versus 12. That's tough. I like hole three a lot. I think I have to defer to, to 12 there. All right. I agree with you there. So it's all square. 13 versus four. This is a Stephen Ames. Tiger Woods, Stephen Ames, 13, I think, crushes four. Yeah. All right. So one up the back nine, five versus 14. 
I mean, I would pick five, but I haven't. You're, you're giving me some reasons that to like 14, but I, hole five is like one of my favorite long par fours in professional golf. Um, I would. I hate. I I really dislike the new bunkers on five where they sit. I would prefer them a little bit more to the left. That being said, the second shot into five is is pretty unbelievable. That green's unreal. Like that would be on the list of best greens at Augusta National. I'll I'll push it so that we get five in there. So it's all square. Then we go to six versus fifteen. This is a tough one. This is a controversial one. Yeah. I I feel like I have to go with six here. I think six five has produced a lot of awesome or sorry, fifteen has produced a lot of awesome moments. In terms of what I value in professional golf and optionality, I think six is kind of more interesting, especially that right pin, watching guys try to two-putt from down low left. I'm going to go with six here. What about you? Man, this is... I, I, I think I like six as a whole more, maybe. That being said, I think that like they offer... I mean, the second standing on the hill, hitting the second shot on 15 is one of the most demanding shots in all of golf. So I'm probably going 15 on top of like the moments that it's produced in especially the recent year. I think it's been the hole that's decided the most masters in the last 10 years. So I'm going 15. We'll push that. It's still all square. Here's the poo-poo platter um, <laughs> uh, battle. Seven versus... Uh, 16. I'm taking 16. Not my favorite hole, but I, I actually really enjoy watching that back right pin location on 16. Uh, seven, I, I just think it's a stinker. So I'm I'm taking 16. <laughs> I, this is, uh, I don't know what to do here. <laughs> I think I'm taking seven. I like the approach to seven from the fairway more than I like the approach to 16. Um, I think that's a really neat, different, varied green on the, on the front nine. I think the shallow nature of it, this, how it's got the, sh- the shelf in between it. That is a really, really great green that, um, really showcases the variety of greens at Augusta national. And I think 16's the weakest green at Augusta national. So I can't, I both can't are funnily. There. Right, both Sunday pins get really funnily on seven and yeah. sixteen, or historical well, Sunday pins. That's where like seven. I I like that it's um, you gotta you gotta have the ball in the fairway, and I think if they widened it, it'd be even better. Where like everybody's and it's like you gotta hit the shot. It's gonna be a wedge to this funnel pin, but if you're in the rough, then it gets tough. Um, so uh, let's go to eight. It's still all square. Eight versus seventeen. I think we probably are both taking eight. Yeah, I'm taking eight. That's a tough one, but I'm taking eight. Nine versus uh, 18. For me, not close. I actually hate the 18th hole at Augusta, so I'd pick nine going away. All right, I'm not, taking nine too. One. I think that 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 second shot dynamic on nine's so fun to watch. Sweet. Just impossibly tough lie to an elevated green. Like everything with the lie, down slope, the ball's going to come out low, side hill lie, the ball's going to tend to squeeze out right, and the thing you can't do is hit a weak, short right shot that doesn't carry. So your de- general, like your innate reaction as a golf course is to compensate, come over it a little and cover the ball. And, and that produces a long left shot. And from there, you just, you're just that, that tiger lag putt when he won in 2019 on that, Sunday. 
there have been a lot of cool shots going back and watching some old masters on YouTube. There have been a lot of cool shots on nine, that Sunday pin, the way that, yeah, the tiger lag putt, that's one of the most fun second and third shots out there on the golf course. So I love hole nine. So I think that's a really cool, I think one of the things that as, uh, aspects of Augusta from the course standpoint is how your lies always work against the shot you want to hit into the green the interaction of the ground with the green orientation. So we just talked about nine 14 is the same way the balls below your feet. And what the, what the struggle with 14 is, is keeping the ball left and staying on the shelf. All the shelves run down to the right. And that's the tended miss from that, that hanging lie is right. How about 13? If you think about 13, you want to hit a fade and a high fade into 13 and they give you the the world's biggest hook lie. So you just think about all the ways that the ter- the ground interacts with the, and it's always running counter to the shot you want to hit. It's awesome. Yeah, it, it's something we don't see very often on in professional golf, right? These, And you need a lot of space to do that, right, Andy? Because if you had narrow fairways, how heavily contoured could they be? So I, I think yeah. it is a kind of a requirement that you have a bunch of space, which not every golf course can replicate but that's why Augusta's special. All right. Um, have we covered the course? I think so. I, I think we got through all my notes. Um, I wanted to get into some of the players and, and some of the storylines entering this Masters. I mean, it's it's interesting that we're not seeing a lot of them square off head-to-head entering the Masters. Pretty, pretty fragmented and disjointed top of the world right now in golf. Yeah. So I kind of wanted to put you on the spot and make you make you rank... Scotty, Rom, Rory, and Brooks. Who do you think best chances if you had to order them or, or pick one or two that you your life depended on them being in the top five? Those top four names, where are you right now? I think I think it's hard to not take Scotty number one. And I know the putter's an issue, but you know that the ball striking is going to be there. So I think I'd probably go Rom and Scotty one and two. And I think Brooks and Rory present somewhat variable wild cards. Um, You know, we saw Brooks play great early in the majors. Then he wasn't really much of a factor the last two majors. We saw Rory play really, really well at LACC. Um, When Rory seemingly plays poorly now, it's still a top 10. Uh, Last year's Masters, you know, that was the only one that he hasn't finished in the top 10 in the last eight. Right. Um, I mean, it's a great question. I think what would be awesome is if all four of those guys were playing on the same tour and we got to look at all of them in the similar environment. But right now we only, we get Rahm and, and Brooks who I think have both played pretty well at the start of this year. They haven't won, but both of them played well on live. Um, and, uh, and then you get uh, Rory and Scotty, Rory's played on two, two different tours, dominated on the DP World Tour, and uh, headed over to the the U.S. Tour. It hasn't been the same. I wonder, you know, if part of it's just everything that's going on off the course with with the U.S. Tour. If being on the DP World Tour offered, like, wow, this was a chill week where nobody's asking me all these questions. Um, but Scotty, I, I don't know. How would you go? Maybe this is an overcorrection to to last year, but I. I feel pretty strongly that Rom should be the favorite. And they're all kind of 
those top three are kind of co-favorites with Brooks a little behind them. I, I think the accuracy with his driver is a big thing and kind of going back to what we've talked about earlier in this pod with big misses being penalized. Like Rory out there, how far he hits it and he can get a little stray. A lot of tee shots make me nervous where I don't have that concern with John Rahm who just hits it appreciably straighter. I And with Scotty, how bad the short putting is. I know it's not the most important spot to putt lights out, but every hole can turn into a bogey for Scotty pretty quickly. Whereas John Rahm just doesn't have those holes in his game. So I think John Rahm should be the favorite this year, even though who knows what his game is going to look like entering. I think we saw last year that a lot of the live guys were fine. So I think John Rahm should be the favorite. I have a question for you. Do you think Rory should throttle back? We saw at LACC a similar. Yeah, I think there's some similarities there, but we saw like a distinct difference in his game plan. He hit irons, which he still hits really far. He hit a lot of three woods. Do you think a three woods easier to turn over right to left? Do you think that Rory should be thinking about maybe hitting less drivers, knowing that he's plenty long? with throttling back. I I love this. I I didn't, I'm glad you asked it. That's a, that's something that I've felt. Yes, he should. And I know that runs antithetical to what gets discussed a lot in the golf analytics circles, always hit driver. Augusta is different in how it penalizes wide misses where it's a lot different than somewhere like Torrey Pines. So I, I don't think Rory should just plot his way around with three wood, but there are opportunities where I think he should. The first hole is a good example of that. And we've seen him hit some spray drivers the final round 2018 with Patrick Reed, where Rory starts the day by just flaring one way out right into the trees on one. I think one is a three wood. Um, I think 10 for sure is a three wood that you can turn over right to left. So there's some opportunities out there where I think he should be throttling back. Yeah, I don't think it's a it's a crazy idea. Like I don't I, I he's one of my big takeaways last year from the majors is this, it's astonishing how much further he hits the ball or farther it'd be farther for giving farther. He hits the ball than people we consider very long. If the golf course is like firm and rolling, he will, he was, you know, at LA, he was regularly 25 past Scheffler. I mean, that's insanity. And he can give up some of that for preferred shape. And, I know that statistically, a lot of times, like in in a bulk sample, when you look at every player, dispersion patterns of a three wood and a driver aren't that much different. They are different, though. They are different. They, they are different. That much different. I I think this is at, at the top level of the game. We need to look at like personal dispersion patterns, yeah. not bulk. And I'd be really curious to see what Rory's dispersion with a three wood is versus a driver. And if it if it keeps one ball out of the out of like the the trees out of the pine straw that that really plays into his hands. That's that's the big number that we just talked about with the golf course. Yep. And look, the some of what gets discussed is bulk, but people do look at that kind of thing. I can tell you for a fact, Rory's dispersion is appreciably tighter with the three wood, which makes sense. Most golfers are not just because the ball is traveling farther offline also that you do hit it straighter from an, like this perspective of the dispersion angle with a three wood so i'd is like it, to see because of the loft right in well, loft? yeah yeah you just have more control over the ball in general i mean i'm sure shorter, some of that shorter club 
if Rory's, I'm sure he has certain swings with driver that tighten the dispersion. So you could get into some of that, but um, in general, I agree with you. He needs to be thinking about where those big misses could come into play and, and consider hitting a three with there, especially if it doesn't have uh, changed the approach difficulty that much. Like that's a big thing. I think generally at Augusta, like if 20 yards, is worth a different amount on different holes, right? On 15, an extra 20 yards is a huge deal. But yeah. on the first hole, it's not as big I wouldn't a deal. say hit hit uh, three wood there. Exactly. Exactly. Um, Andy, wanted to ask you this. So golfers who have played at least 12 rounds since 2010 at the Masters, top strokes gained by round. Rom is two, Scheffler's three, Rory's five, and Brooks is six. Can you guess one and four? Hmm. One and four by round. Um, Jordan Spieth. Jordan Spieth, number one. And then Ro- he's very close to Rom and close Justin to Rose. Those three be. all pretty close. Sorry? Justin Rose. Justin Rose, number four. So I think that that's interesting. You get the top three there, Spieth, Rom, and Scheffler all around 2.2, 2.3 strokes around. Then a pretty big half a shot gap to Rose at 1.7, 1.8. And then Rory and Brooks at five and six. So I think uh, the, the Spieth conversation and, and you're just a guy take, this is an interesting use case this year for what Spieth's going to have. He's, he's number one. I mean, you talk about a place that fits fits his game really well. Like if he could just uh, keep the ball in the corridors from there on, from, from the basically the tee shot on, you couldn't design a better golf course for Jordan Spieth. So, uh, I think similar with like somebody like Cam Smith. Right, I think yeah, it's kind of reasonable to sense. lump those two golfers together. Uh, th- those are that is a, actually a really good comp. Those are two players that play a very similar style. Um, I think Cam. I'm I'm excited. I want to see Cam. One of the things that I'm, I wish we had was like shot link similar data across the two tours. Has Cam lost some speed? It seems like he's not in the same shape that he was in uh, when he won the Open. You look at pictures, it's it's very, very different. Um, has he lost speed? Is he the same? You know, is, is it, it that these are things that I, I wonder, right? Because like, I think with with Cam. The two years preceding the open win, which at that point, I think he was very much on a trajectory to get to number one in the world before he went to live. The improvement of the T to green game was astounding. And there was, there was substantial speed, which helped him get to the short irons, which the short irons and wedge play. I don't know if I would, if, if, if coming down the stretch, I don't know if there's anybody in the world. I have more confident confidence with a short iron in, in their, in their hand. I don't think so. But you know, if you, if you even lose a fraction of that speed, it has such a big impact down through the bag. Um, because if it's one one extra club into every green, it might seem like such an inconsequential number, but like this, the difference between ultra elite uh, male professional golfers and above average is fractional stuff. Totally. And if it could be the difference between having an eight footer for birdie and an 11 footer for birdie. And he's such a good putter that he's burying a lot of those eight footers. So I think a huge part of the Cam Smith ascension was, yeah, picking up that speed, which gives him more short irons and those putts that you can convert. So, uh, 
was just pulling some stats. I don't want to bore people with stats, but was just pulling together some. I, I kind of set the range from 2010 onward, but Andy, players who've played at least five events since 2010 and made the cut in all of them. Cam Smith is one of those players. Seven to seven made cuts here, and he has four top tens in that span. Rom has also made all of those cuts, seven of seven, and another player that we're going to see, Adam Scott, 14 of 14 made cuts. I think it's pretty impressive since 2010, 14 to 14. He's the only golfer that's played, that's made all the cuts in that span who's played at least a 10 events. So those are a couple names to be thinking about, not just them potentially doing well at Augusta, but why do those golfers do well at Augusta and what might that reflect about skill sets of other players who could do well? Are there any newcomers that you're particularly interested and excited to watch? I think Wyndham Clark might be the most exciting name. Uh, I'm really excited to see what Wyndham Clark can do at Augusta. I mean, he's not a newcomer. I don't know if you can I feel like he, I mean, he's a newcomer in the sense of he really started to put it together last May. And he's never played Augusta. He hasn't. No, I mean, he wasn't in, he wasn't in Augusta last year. (sighs) That's, that's insane. It's so crazy. You got, two, you got two players that are in the top 11 in the world rankings that are going to be playing their first Masters. It's crazy. I know because that was the story with Wyndham Clark. He won the U.S. Open and he hadn't even been qualified for the Masters. I forgot so about that. I'm pretty excited to see what he can do. And you're, you're kind of alluding to Ludwig. Ludwig. Ludwig Ober. What do you? Yeah. What are your expectations for him? How excited are you to watch him for the first time at Augusta? I'm super excited. I think this is just, uh, I think it's a golf course that's hard to get comfortable on. And the number one thing that, that is required for success at Augusta is being comfortable. It's about being able to free yourself and, and really commit to targets, make swings and not be worried about where it could go or what might happen. Because the only thing worse than hitting a bad shot is worrying about hitting a bad shot out there. Um, because that that's going to lead to one. So I think that's probably why first timer struggle at Augusta is just not being comfortable enough to let it go. Uh, that being said, I think he's been a super impressive um, talent. I think his his game presents itself pretty well. I I think we saw in the Ryder Cup his approach play was a little leaky and that's a super small sample size, but the way he played there under similar, I think pressure, similar, uncomfortable, uh, uncomfortable situation. That's what would make me hesitant about Ludwig. I think it's one of the most interesting stories in golf is like, what does Ludwig's long iron play look like? Because you just don't see it that often on the PGA tour. He kind of cleaned up, last late summer and through the fall, but that's not a lot of long irons. You're right. Marco Simone struggled a little bit with the long irons. And then Genesis, he was fine. I mean, he's shown he can hit a long iron. Like the guy's an amazing ball striker, but what's he going to do at Augusta is a great question. Last year, last year, a player um, told me that had played with Ludwig um, when I was asking, asking them about him. He said, he's no ROM. In what way? The long iron? Just like that was the general thought. And I think they've been on a similar trajectory in terms of their play early in their career. But it was illuminating to me that that was the the comment. He's really good, but he's no ROM. 
And maybe that, I I don't know, that was obviously before he went on a crazy run that he's gone on, but I thought that was illuminating. Yeah, I, I think this is going to be a big opportunity to find out a little bit what Ludwig's game is. So that's probably one of the most compelling names to keep an eye on. His, his debut at Augusta, uh, golfers have done well in their debuts at Augusta. It's not impossible. And that's one name I was going to throw at you, Andy, that I think isn't a long shot, but some it's not on the first sheet of names. I think Sahith is a super interesting name this year. He made his debut at Augusta last year and finished ninth, solo ninth. Played well at the old course. He's he's a good ball striker. He's got the power off of the tee and some of the long iron play. I, the short There's game, enough there's a little bit more space too, which I think he can get a little bit wild and that space a little bit. Yep. It, it helps him out. He's got a lot of shots. He's a sh- he knows how to hit golf shots. I think that's like the this sounds simplistic, but the guy's got a lot in his bag. He does. And, and even some of, like, I know Phoenix isn't necessarily the best comparison, but it has some similarities to Augusta, especially controlling those approach shots into kind of big, firm greens. Finished fifth Phoenix this year, and he almost won, as we remember previously. So I, I think Sahith's kind of an interesting name to keep on, an eye on. Andy, do you have anybody that wouldn't be on the first sheet of names that you think is either going to play well or you're just excited to see how he stands up. I mean, I'm excited to see Neiman play. And obviously we, we, I, he's played so well. I, this has been a controversial topic in golf with him, the exemption he got the live thing, but I, I've been, I got to commend him for playing all over the world and attempt to get this and get it. Um, he's played well there in the past. It's, I, he's one of the people that like is one of the more, the people that I miss more that went to live. Like I would say Cam Smith, him Brooks. And I mean, he's only 25 years old. It's crazy. I mean, this is the thing when you turn pro at 18, he's, he's a household name, but he's still only 25. So there's, you know, a extreme, you know, he familiarity and this is when when guys and i just i think i like him being from chile um i just i guess he's someone that i'm excited to see um just in general minwoo lee could be fun to watch out there um who will be in there just i think he's shown up in some some big moments he's had some flashes uh again like i think minwoo's older than than neiman just as a reference point, right? Everybody thinks about Min Wu as this like young star. And I think he's older than Neiman, if I, if I'm correct. He is older than Neiman just by a few months, but yeah. Um, I love the, the Neiman call Andy. I think one thing we've seen some guys who do well at Riviera show up and do well at Augusta, right? Adam Scott, Bubba Watson, a lot of, similarities there sort of and the long iron test the complex greens neiman won by multiple shots at riviera in 2022 i think he might be the name that if he showed up at the top of the leaderboard on thursday at this year's masters it would sneak up on some people but it really shouldn't like he's somewhere around 50 to one on on depending on what book you're looking at and i think him having longer odds than like a fee now as much as I like Finau, I think Neiman's got a better chance of winning this golf tournament than Tony Finau. Um, 
I guess like something that I'm just fascinated to watch is Justin Thomas. Just in general, you know. Um, he's never he's played okay there. Um, I I think he had a real shot to win in 2020. Um, he hasn't played great. He played really well at at some soft setups. Uh, once we ratcheted up here in the last few weeks, he hasn't played as well. So, listen, like, I think it's this is hard. I is JT's best golf beyond him, behind him, and I think this wow. year's majors. He's thirty years old. It's a big question. You you look at superstar players, and I it, Justin Thomas is a superstar. Um, in golf, usually superstars are like five years. Seven years, ten years of really high level play. We're at like there are really special superstars get to ten years of high level play. For JT, we're at about seven years of really high level play. I don't think this is a crazy question to ask. I think the same thing could be said about Jordan Spieth. I think. Rory's the outlier of this generation where his high pl- high level of play has surpassed 10 years. I mean, anybody that, that disagrees with this, go find me how many superstars had more than 10 years of extremely elite play in the history of, of modern professional golf. The list is super short. I mean, Feldo's cliff is like 10 years, and that guy won six majors. Uh, Duvall was really short. VJ Singh had a really strong 10 years. Ernie Els was about 10 to 12 years. I mean, you're talking about generational players right there. Um, it is it is extremely hard to play this game at a top 10, top 15 level for a really long time. And I and Rory might be, you know, I think Rom is poised to do it just because of how repeatable his swing is. Um how sound his game is, but it's very hard to do this. And if, if, if this year's majors aren't great for JT, I think it, it really opens up a question because the young, young talent, he's not long anymore. And we saw this happen with Ricky. Ricky's game started to fall off when he went from being an above average player off the tee to an average player with youth speed. And the same thing is happening now. It, you know, these young players are so fast and long that what it does is it takes above average skills and makes them average skills off the tee. The only player that seemingly like really kept up and, and continued to be a speed king is Rory. Like it's really hard to do. I love this call. I mean, JT still has some speed. Like he's still gaining distance on the field, but he's not going to be right near the top. And his Not results, when he was like a top 20 guy. Off yeah, the team. and some of winning is getting yourself in the mix a lot. He hasn't really gotten himself in the mix at Augusta like he should. I mean, he's been there before, but we're, we're not looking at a ton of amazing finishes from, from JT at Augusta. He was cut last year, eighth the year before, 21st the year before. There's a lot in that 10 to 25 range. Uh, I think a big thing with Justin Thomas to watch is his tee shots on the 13th hole. I know I've called this out before, but he's not somebody he, he, he you don't likes like to get the sl- really the funky hook. with this like whip draw. 
off of that tee. I don't like the shot with the driver, and he's cost himself a lot of strokes on that hole. So that is a big one to watch. <laughs> My question is, I don't think he would ever try and hit that shot if he hadn't have gotten that great bounce on this 18th hole at TPC Sawgrass. Sawgrass. <laughs> it was one of the great bounces in golf history. I mean, that ball was snapping and managed to bounce straight because it caught like that little slope. If that ball ends up in the water there, he probably never hits that shot again. And that's a big that's thing. That's the way golf works. I, I hear you. And and guys trying to hit the big draw with driver, it's just with the modern technology, it's not really something that is advised. I think the 10th hole at Augusta is another example where if JT tries to do that with driver, I'd hold your breath. 10 and 13, those are big shots to watch. Yeah, I agree. Um, the I think... Yeah, it's that's where distance is advantage. That's where, you know, could Rory get around the corner on 13 with a three wood and turn it over? Probably, right? Uh, one, one maybe last question for you, Andy. Patrick Cantlay and Xander Shoffley, both in contention at Riviera. Pretty weak performances on Sunday. Are you giving either golfer a chance of winning this Masters? <laughs> Yeah, I've given them a chance. They're two of the best players in the world. I am. I. I'm always fat. The, the thing that's really drawn my attention the last couple of years with them is they're they are marching up the top tens in, or top ten weeks in the top ten of the OWGR without a major. They are they are unassailably both. I doubt both of them will win the one one this year. But one of them at the end of this year, assuming they both don't win one or both of them will be near. They will be the top modern player, uh, you know, non like uncompetitive. The only people ahead of them will be Westy and Kyle Montgomery for weeks in the top 10 without a major. Pretty crazy. Unbelievably consistent. Not a lot of looks at winning a major. Xander had a ton early. 2019 for sure. Yeah, he's had some looks. But it's it's almost I don't know. This again, um this goes to this this career understanding the career of a superstar. Um they aren't they aren't long. And you could ask the same thing about Cantley and Xander is are we getting to the end of their maybe 5 to 7 year run as a top player? I don't necessarily think so. Uh, but these are, there is a, a shelf life on players and understanding that his history says this is important when you're considering these players. So Jake Knapp's not going to be a star that at, at age 30, that just won for the first he could. time. He could, I, I think uh, one of the things that has happened with the tour is like, we've become so fascinated with, with, um, the prodigy that we lose, we've lost sight of like the normal career progression. And I think Wyndham Clark is a great reminder of that where Wyndham Clark's run as a, a star might be starting now. And we might look back seven years ago and be like, you know, he didn't figure it out till he was 28. Pretty crazy that Wyndham Clark could, I mean, uh, we talked about a lot of golfers and you've talked about this, just not getting it done recently. Andy Wyndham Clark has won. He's won Wells Fargo, U.S. Open, at Pebble, shortened event. Like he's actually starting to to win. 
be pretty impressive if he gets himself in the mix at the Masters and, and shoots up the world rankings. I know the world rankings are a little distorted right now, not ranking live guys, but Wyndham's got a real shot at becoming the number one golfer in the world, which is a pretty crazy climb. And a real takeaway from Riviera, he's got serious horsepower. Oh, I, yeah. He's one of the few players that I've ever seen keep up with Rory McIlroy off the tee. Guy bombs it. So I think that you talk about this modern game of golf that is always going to be an extremely important thing. And he putts well, and he, he could be a good iron player um, in spurts. So, so yeah. Um, all right. That does it for our early. You know, We'll obviously cover the Masters in much greater detail as we get closer. But we wanted to kind of set the stage, uh, give a look as we get closer to the Masters at uh, kind of the big things going into it. Uh, Joseph, uh, uh, recommendations on our on our way out. Do you have a recommendation this week? I do. Let me grab the name. There's this. I'm not a soccer fan, Andy. I, that's like the one sport that I don't watch or football for the European listeners. Let's call it European football. True football is in America. But uh, oh, somebody man, had recommended get people riled up there. Yeah, that's that's what I'm going for. Uh, somebody had recommended me this. Substack from John Muller, M-U-L-L-E-R, and he kind of gets into some of the tactics in European football uh, and, uh, and applying some concepts from other sports. So it's a sport I know almost nothing about, but I'm pretty interested in, in reading a little bit about the tactics, understanding the sport at a little bit of a deeper level, and maybe that'll be something that gets me into it. So if somebody reads this and thinks this is very basic, I have a better recommendation for you and has something that I can read feel free to to tweet it or post it at me. But uh, I've been enjoying learning a little bit more about the ins and outs of soccer. I feel like there is some overlap with soccer strategies and hockey strategies. Probably you know, yeah. just with how the offense is initiated. I, I grew up playing hockey and uh, I just whenever I watch soccer, I feel like it's similar where there's like a patience to the offense and it's about moving the puck or the ball around enough to get a defense imbalanced and then attacking, um, which there, when you can watch them at a deep level, I always love watching playoff hockey. I, I feel like I have less and less time in my life uh, as I get older. And, and that's one of the things that's fallen by the wayside, but um, that's, it's just fun to watch because it's a patient game, right? It's not everything doesn't just un, unravel really quickly. It's similar to golf in that aspect. My recommendation is, uh, which is coming out in a couple of weeks, Full Swing 2, season two. I've watched two episodes. I think so far, it's, it's a, I like it a lot more than season one. There's a little bit more depth to the show. Um, I could be completely wrong by the time I watch the rest of it, but so far, I think it's pretty good. Super excited. Uh, yeah, I, I think this season has a lot of potential and kind of laying the groundwork season one. Season two can expand upon that and you know some of the characters already, so maybe they can get a little bit deeper into some of their backstories and what's been going on in the last year. So I'm, I'm very excited about it, Andy. This episode was edited and produced by Meg Atkins. Meg, back on the the production chair with Matt traveling this week. Thank you. And as a quick reminder, join Club TFE. We got lots of stuff going on there. Um, 
we just posted a uh, review of the park. We uh, we dive in deep there. Um, on top of that, we'll have you know we have weekly design notebooks and monthly videos. So there is a ton of uh, content that's being produced in Club TFE. Uh, it's one hundred and twenty dollars for the year, and that really goes to help support uh, everything we're trying to do as we continue to grow and uh, and uh, evolve here at Friday Golf. So thank you, and we will be back later this week. 